Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Take Up and Read, 10 Favorite Books from 2009. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 10th, 2010. If Catholic piety centers on the sacraments, and Eastern Orthodoxy privileges the aesthetics of icons and images, then Protestantism is a quintessentially book tradition. In The Illuminating Icon, 1989, Anthony Ugolnik suggests that the conversion of St. Augustine in 386 is a primary epistemological model for Western believers. You might remember how Augustine relates in his Confessions how he was converted when he heard the voice of a little child commanding him, quote, take up and read, the Bible being open to Romans 13, 13. Protestants, you might say, have been trying to read their way into heaven. The English Puritan John Fox believed that, quote, God conducted the Reformation not by the sword, but by printing, writing, and reading. On the title page of his book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Fox depicted two congregations at worship, Catholics fingering their rosaries and Protestants reading books in their laps. The 16th century Reformation that convulsed Europe spawned a text-oriented faith that denigrated images and de-emphasized the sacraments. The reformers whittled away Catholicism's seven sacraments down to two. A new piety arose in which private reading, unmediated by church clerics, usurped rituals and relics. In the early years of the Reformation, Protestant extremists smashed sculptures, defaced images, and whitewashed the frescoes of churches. Images, sniffed the Genevan reformer John Calvin, cannot stand in the place of books. The sermon upstaged the Eucharist as the defining moment of the liturgy. Reformation sermons were delivered from an elevated pulpit in street vernacular and directed to a person's intellect instead of in ritual formulas intoned in Latin which no one understood. Preachers like Zwingli and Martin Luther preached their sermons wearing a radical change of dress, the scholar's gown as opposed to a monk's cowl, symbolizing this centrality of books, words, scholarship, and ideas. These radical changes highlighted the inextricable link between ministry and scholarship for Protestants. And so the Eastern Orthodox lay theologian Alexei Komyakov once complained that in Protestantism a scholar has taken the place of a priest. And the Russian Orthodox theologian Sergei Bulgakov similarly described Protestantism as a professor's religion in which the central actor is the preacher-scholar in the library rather than the priest in the sanctuary. In fact, the best and first colleges and universities in America, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and so on, were all founded in large part to educate a learned clergy. The invention of movable type 
along with the production of paper from rags instead of animal skins or reed-based parchments, was the engine that drove the Reformation. They made book production cheaper, easier, and profitable. Luther, whose collected works run to some 60 volumes, is a case in point. Between 1517 and 1520, his pamphlets sold over 300,000 copies. His phenomenal capacity to write met the voracious appetite and enthusiasm of a newly literate public. In his book, The Reformation, Diarmaid McCullough notes that there were 390 editions of various of Luther's writings published in Germany in 1523 alone. And it's been calculated that beyond what he himself had written, around 3 million copies of related pamphlets were printed in Germany by 1525. Print could take the Reformation to anyone who was prepared to hear a pamphlet being read. And so in books, pamphlets, sermons, and tracts, the early Protestants encountered what McCullough calls the explosive power of an idea. Monarchs, priests, nuns, merchants, farmers, laborers were all seized by ideas that tore through their experiences and memories and made them behave in new ways, sometimes admirable, sometimes monstrous. <coughs> Protestants then and now discover in books <coughs> what the psalmist for this week calls the voice of the Lord. Sometimes the voice of the Lord, says Psalm 29, thunders, breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon, strikes with flashes of lightning, shakes the desert, twists the oaks, and strips the forests bare. At other times, the voice of the Lord that we discover in books speaks softly and gently to us. After his baptism by Jesus, John heard a voice, Jesus heard a voice from heaven the declaration of God the Father that Jesus was his beloved Son. And so, with gratitude to those first reading Protestants, here are my top ten books for 2009. In each of them, each in their own way, I encountered the bark-stripping power of ideas and the tender voice of the Lord. My top ten books in alphabetical order. Julian Barnes, Nothing to be Frightened of. I don't believe in God, writes the British atheist novelist in this memoir, but I do miss him. Barnes explores the double entendre of his title. <coughs> Veronica Chater, Waiting for the Apocalypse, a memoir of faith and family. A daughter recalls how the fanatical faith and deep love of her father inflicted horrible damage on the entire family. Terry Eagleton, Reason, Faith, and Revolution, Reflections on the God Debate. This is a withering and witty polemic against the atheists Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens by Britain's leading literary critic. Deborah Ellis, Children of War, Voices of Iraqi Refugees. 
23 Iraqi children ages 9 to 19 tell what it's like to experience war. Philip Fradkin, Wallace Stegner in the American West, published to coincide with the centennial of Stegner's birth and written with the full cooperation of his only child, Fragton considers Stegner as a talented teacher, reluctant con con conservationist, and prominent author. Daniel Jonah Goldhagen, Worse Than War, Genocide, Eliminationism, and the Ongoing Assault on Humanity. Goldhagen examines how ordinary people eliminated 127 to 175 million fellow citizens in the last hundred years. Brad Gooch, Flannery, A Life of Flannery O'Connor. This is the first biography of O'Connor since she died of lupus in 1964. It explores the Catholic novelist who attended daily mass most of her adult life and who described herself as a 13th century Christian and hermit novelist. Mary Gordon, Reading Jesus, A Writer's Encounter with the Gospels. An award-winning author and English professor at Barnard College explains how, at the age of 60, she realized with a clutch of anxiety and shame that she had never read the Gospels from beginning to end. Her book is the result of that disturbing and exhilarating experience. Jeffrey Spear, Picturing the Bible, the Earliest Christian Art. This hefty coffee table book should be savored both for its scholarly texts and its spectacular images. 263 color plates and 40 black and white. The book was published in conjunction with an exhibition conceived and organized by Spear for the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. Jeffrey Tubin, The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court. Tubin garnered a dozen or so Book of the Year awards for his description of life, work, quirky personalities, and the power of partisan ideology inside the highest court of the land. And finally, Diane Wilson, Holy Roller, Growing Up in the Church of Knockdown Dragout, or How I Quit Loving a Blue-Eyed Jesus. A fourth-generation shrimper on the Texas Gulf Coast recalls her colorful family, a crazy faith subculture, the hard life of shrimpers, crabbers, and oystermen, and a mysterious double homicide. Okay, if you're counting, that's 11 books, not 10. At any rate, with the voice that St. Augustine heard, I would encourage you in 2010, take up and read, listening for the voice of the Lord. For books this week, I review one of my top 10 books, excuse me, uh, I don't. It's James Connor, 
The title of the book, The Last Judgment, Michelangelo and the Death of the Renaissance. Paul Grave Macmillan, 2009, 233 pages. Many of us who think of Michelangelo remember his famous fresco on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel that depicts the creation account in Genesis. And of course his marble statue of David, a 17-foot colossus of the biblical king in a triumphantly nude pose, a perfect specimen of humanity. James Conner's book examines Michelangelo's other great fresco, The Last Judgment, painted on the western altar wall of the Sistine Chapel almost 30 years after he finished the ceiling. Michelangelo started work on The Last Judgment in 1536, when he was 61 years old and finished it five years later when it was unveiled on Christmas Day, 1541. Measuring a gigantic 46 by 43 feet, the work covers 1,978 square feet and contains 456 giornate, or individual plaster sections. Like much great art, the fresco was the subject of immediate critical controversy and even censored by the Council of Trent, which demanded that parts of it be repainted. One figure depicts an avaricious pope with a set of keys and a bag of gold. Another shows a man dragged into hell by his testicles. Energy and anxiety radiate from the swirl of supplicants, both saved and damned, encircling Christ the Judge. Encoded into the painting is the heliocentrism of Copernicus and a likeness of Michelangelo himself. Connor does a wonderful job of combining history, art, theology, and biography into an uncluttered narrative. He situates the work in the context of the tumult of Renaissance Italy in the sack of Rome in 1527 the Protestant Reformation that was convulsing Europe, and the unfolding of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. He introduces us to a colorful cast of characters, the popes, of course, but also the ascetic reformer Savonarola, who was eventually hanged and burned, Michelangelo's male love, Tommaso Cavalieri, his female friend, Vittoria Colonna, the body pornographer and troublemaker Arantino, and his longtime assistant Urbino. I especially enjoyed his explanation of the nature and techniques of Buon Fresco, in which the artist applies pigments to wet plaster. The Last Judgment is not only a great work of art, it's also a theological confession by Michelangelo for whom, according to O'Connor, all his painting, sculpture, architect, and poetry were his own deeply personal prayers. It's clear that the epitome of the so-called Renaissance man asks himself, where will I be on that great day? And that he also challenges every person, and what about you? A short bibliography for further reading completes the book. 
My only disappointment is that this book contains only a few black and white reprints and not full color plates that a book in fresco like The Last Judgment deserves. James Connor, The Last Judgment, Michelangelo and the Death of the Renaissance. For film this week, I review Avatar, newly released at the end of 2009. The time is 2154. The place, a moon, 4.3 light years from Earth called Pandora. Humans have come to Pandora to extract a precious metal called unobtainium that, they think, will solve their energy crisis. But humanity's arrival begets a so-called time of great sorrow for the native Navi in their Edenic culture. The Navi are ten feet tall, have blue skin, and the eyes, ears, and tail of a cat. They understand English, but speak their own language. A paraplegic marine named Jake Sully serves as an intermediary between the two peoples by becoming a Navi-humanoid hybrid, or avatar. He transports back and forth between his human life on the spacecraft and his avatar identity as a Navi. He's transformed in the process, falls in love with his Navi mentor, Neytiri, and must choose his ultimate identity and allegiance. Special effects master and director James Cameron, who made Titanic, Terminator, and the Aliens, spent almost $500 million in four years to take digital cinematics to a new level of 3D complexity. Film critics have gushed and raved, and now audiences in a hundred countries will judge whether the nearly three-hour epic lives up to its Hollywood hype. James Cameron, Avatar. And finally this week, we've posted a poem by St. Francis of Assisi, who lived from 1182 to 1226. Canticle of the Sun or as it sometimes is called, praise of the creatures. Most high, all-powerful, all-good Lord, all praise is yours, all glory, all honor and blessing. To you alone, most high, do they belong. No mortal lips are worthy to pronounce your name. Be praised, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially through my Lord, brother, son, who brings the day, and you give light through him, and he is beautiful and radiant in all his splendor. Of you, most high, he bears the likeness. Be praised, my Lord, through sister moon and the stars. In the heavens you have made them bright, precious, and beautiful. Be praised, my Lord, through brothers' wind and air, and clouds and storms and all the weather, through which you give your creatures sustenance. Be praised, my Lord, through sister water. She is very useful and humble and precious and pure. Be praised, my Lord, through brother fire, through whom you brighten the night. He is beautiful and cheerful and powerful and strong.
Be praised, my Lord, through our sister Mother Earth, who feeds us and rules us and produces various fruits with colored flowers and herbs. Be praised, my Lord, through those who forgive for love of you, through those who endure sickness and trial. Happy those who endure in peace, for by you, Most High, they will be crowned. Be praised, my Lord, through our sister, bodily death, from whose embrace no living person can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. Happy those she finds doing your most holy will. The second death can do no harm to them. Praise and bless my Lord and give thanks and serve him with great humility. Canticle of the Sun or the Praise of the Creatures, St. Francis of Assisi. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January the 10th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.